All right, we are back. We want to start off by noting that uh, congratulations are in order to the Sacramento News and Review for its 25 years of usually excellent reporting. I know we were a little bit hard on editor Nick Miller last week. Well, then we did name him our horse's ass of the year. And it's only May, so we're figuring for the next seven months he's probably not going to be topped. We'll see. We'll see. But uh, we do want to give credit where credit is due and talk about some of the fine reporting they have done over the past 25 years. And we're going to do that on a special internet-only version of Radio Parallax that we'll put together for next week. In fact, we're anticipating doing some internet-only shows on a semi-regular basis over the next few months. We just have too damn much stuff to talk about uh, with just, you know, 58 minutes to work with every week. And of course, I know Mr. Millen is really looking forward to us being able to use those George Carlin's seven dirty words. All right, so overwhelmed are we with material that we haven't even gotten to the good, the bad, and the ugly yet. Let's do that. All right. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for, is it retreads or possibly the Fountain of Youth, with the news that a Star Wars 7 will soon be filmed. And yes, it will include the original stars, Mark Hamill, 62, Carrie Fisher, 57, and Harrison Ford, 71. Sorry to think they're going to do a part 7, 8, and 9, taking up where 6 sort of seemed to have tied everything together pretty well. Of course, you know, it could be worse. They could bring back Natalie Portman, who many people have tried to assure me over the years actually can act. Now, we hold out the possibility that, that this may be true, just, just that there's been no evidence of it so far in any of the Star Wars movies. Moving right along, <laughs> it was a bad week last week for career choices after a would-be bank robber in Florida unsuccessfully demanded cash from a teller who was protected by bulletproof glass. The robber then left behind a stick-up note written on the back of a job application which actually contained his identifying information. So I guess the lesson in that is, if you do plan to rob a bank, for God's sakes, use a fresh, clean sheet of paper for your stick-up note. Finally, it was an ugly week last week for the 1%, after the wife of a wealthy Chinese businessman rented a mountain to teach their nine-year-old daughter about nature. Reason Guy Lin, if I can afford to rent a mountain, why not? All right, Radio Paradox would also like to wish a happy birthday to the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. Yes, it's been 100 years since uh, Henry Norris Russell and Enyar Hertzsprung independently derived a plot of the absolute magnitude or the real-life brightness of stars versus their surface temperature or color. From their work, we gained our first understanding of how stars uh, normally plot out and what their normal evolution is as they um, live out their stellar lives. The current edition of Sky and Telescope magazine has a pretty good uh, version of the H. Our diagram showing our sun to be a uh, medium-sized yellow star right smack in the middle of the diagram. Of course, we now know that the vast majority of all stars in the universe are red dwarfs. 
And no, the Sky and Telescope uh, article does not contain an adequate explanation of why it is the code for these various stars goes by O-B-A-F-G-K-M, which astronomy students have learned to memorize by using O-B-A-Fine-Girl, Kiss Me. But we can tell you this, to make a diagram like this, uh, showing how bright stars are versus their color, you have to know how bright a star really is, and to know that, you have to know how far away it is. And to do that, the best method is to use parallax. Yes, relatively nearby stars, for which we have good information, are measured by the tiny shifts in stars' positions against the background of more distant stars as our Earth changes positions in its yearly orbit. We actually did a show with astronomer Alan Hirschfeld about his book Parallax, The Race to Measure the Cosmos, some years back, and we highly recommend that you check that out in our archives if you didn't hear it the first time, dear listener. You can do that by going to radioparallax.com. And by the way, keep those, uh, keep those letters coming in. You can drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. I want to thank Angie, whom I went to high school with, for dropping us a line last week uh, upon my mentioning that I was going to go out and get some bees. We'll have to talk more about that before the hour's up. But anyway, good to hear from you, Angie. And I hope we'll have time to tell the bee story because we're, we're frankly running out of it. Mr. McMillan, how much time we got left? About four minutes. Good God. All right. Well, back to the HR diagram. It was known for years as the Russell diagram, but apparently Dutch astronomer... Gerard Kuiper kept insisting to his University of Chicago colleague Subramayan Chandreshikar to add credit to Hertzsprung when the diagram was first discussed in the Astrophysical Journal. And uh, his argument carried the day. That's why we today know it as the HR diagram, not just the R diagram. But curiously, in the same issue of the magazine, they noted that although we think of the, uh, the area that includes Pluto, as the Kuiper belt, containing icy objects at the end of the solar system, it turns out that it, well, it probably probably shouldn't be called the Kuiper belt. The same guy that got Hertzsprung added to the, <laughs> the Russell diagram uh, apparently got a little bit too much credit for the idea that there were icy bodies at the end of the solar system. In a letter to the magazine from Guy Otwell from the UK, he wrote, in 2005, trying to adjust some wording about Pluto from my astronomical calendar, 2006, I got help from the great Brian Marsden, then director of the Minor Planet Center. In one of his emails, he wrote to me and said, much as I admire Kuiper, I think the 1980s revisionists gave him too much credit for what he didn't do. The best early description of the trans-Neptunian belt was made by Fred Whipple in 1964. He made a diagram in 1972 showing the comet ring at just the right distance with Pluto itself simply a member of it. Whipple was talking about something still there. Kuiper had it there only in his theorizing about the early solar system. So, did astronomer Fred Whipple get screwed? Maybe so. Well, in the two and a half minutes we have left, I wanted to return to that article about the Denisovans, which we started talking about on last week's program. In a startling bit of science, we reconstructed uh, one of man's closest relatives, that is modern man, Homo sapiens' closest relatives, from just a tooth <laughs> finger bone. Now, with DNA technology being what it is today, they're able to figure out that these Denisovans were an offshoot of the Neanderthals. 
And it appears that the Denisovans branched off from the Neanderthals about 600,000 years ago. DNA evidence, which is now pretty good, suggests that the common ancestor of the Neanderthals and Denisovans branched off from our lineage about 600,000 years ago. Then the Denisovans split from the Neanderthals perhaps 200,000 years later. Now, DNA studies have shown that about 1.7% of the DNA in modern people, other than Africans, comes from Neanderthals. In other words, our ancestors interbred. The Denisovans live on in the people of Eastern Asia and in the Pacific Islands. In fact, when they sampled uh, some of the DNA from uh, a person from Papua New Guinea, they found out that apparently about 4.8% of the genome of the Melanesian people was Denisovan DNA. The genetics is implying that the Denisovans mated with early modern humans somewhere in what is now Southeast Asia and then spread out from there. This is pretty interesting stuff, and as the uh, data continues to come in on it, uh, we will give you an update. We swear. All right, it appears we have just about maybe time for one more brief item in the minute we have left. So let's go with this piece from Mother Jones, which is that despite California's medical marijuana law, most of the green gold farmed here is illegally grown for sale elsewhere, and an estimated 10 million marijuana plants are grown indoors. Here's the startling piece of data. Indoor grow houses are so widespread in California that 9% of the state's household electricity use is now devoted to cannabis. Holy mackerel. Anyway, we're out of time. Our thanks to Sam Keen. We highly recommend that you check out his book and our old pal, Will Durst. This program was produced by Edwin McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett, and I'm looking forward to seeing you on next week's program and on the web in an interim program, which we'll probably have up by, I'm guessing, Tuesday. And I guess we'll have to save the B story for the next regular program.